Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. But my responsibility this morning is to bring our series to a close. We're in week seven, and we're going to close our series today on resilience. And we've been talking uh, about this idea and lifting up some of the different components that are required to have a faith that prevails. And we believe with all of our heart that that is actually what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith, if we understand it appropriately, is this faith that prevails and endures. In fact, John the Beloved was writing in a book that bears his name, an incredible verse of scripture. I want to show it to you. It's, I think, 1 John 5, 4. Look at this. It's, for everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world even, and he says, our faith. And so you can have a faith that overcomes. And so when we experience some of the twists and the turns, you know, and the uncertainties of life, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Pastor Trevor was praying about that uh, for us and for the world here just a few minutes ago. When we think about this, um, we can have a faith that helps us. Jesus literally said these words. He said, you know, you will have trouble You will have trouble, not if you have trouble. You will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so this is the faith. uh, This is what overcomes the world. Uh, It is our faith. Now, if you're with us last week, um, Pastor Trevor did, I think, an awesome job teaching us about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. And if you've not had the opportunity to go back and listen to that message, I want to encourage everybody do that. That would give you a great, I told Trev after the service, I said, um, that's one of the best messages I've ever heard on how to understand the person and work and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if you've not listened to that, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. And uh, he really called that last week, you were with us, he said, that's spiritual resilience part one. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about spiritual resilience part two and really what is required in that. And uh, I want us to think about a passage of scripture that uh, I want to, you may have heard this before, but we're going to unpack this passage of scripture in a way that I think is very compelling in a way that is going to help us a lot. And here's what we've been doing recently. When we read the word of God, we actually stand as a way to honor that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is going to teach us things and we need his wisdom. So would you just stand with me? As, uh, and if you have your Bible or your app, you can open it up. It's going to be on the screen. We're in John chapter 12. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this. Here's how John uh, writes it. He says this. He says, now six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, that was just a chapter ago, right, in, in John chapter 11. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Can you imagine that, being in there when all of that is going on? And then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive uh, perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But now one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. 
and said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And meanwhile, then a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, and not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, and they were believing in him. Fascinating, right? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes that we might uh, not just hear uh, your word, but we would enter into it. And really, most importantly, Jesus, that your word, your timeless, wonderful truth of your word would enter into us. We want to be open to you in this moment. So remove any distractions. Give us the ability to hear with our hearts and receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' precious name, and everybody said, amen. amen. You can be seated. So this is a fascinating story. And uh, there is a story like this in every one of the Gospels. And um, if you read all of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John around this story, you can begin to wonder if perhaps it's actually those are all the same stories in there. This past week, I wanted to double check, so I reached out to a good friend of mine, Dr. Ben Witherington, who is a, a well-known New Testament scholar uh, at the seminary where so many of us attended school, and I asked him, I said, do I have the story right? And you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I thought if you, if you read it, I thought Luke and John's story's the same Matthew and Mark's story is the same. And he reached back to me an email and said, wrong again, Dale. <laughs> and he said, it is actually Matthew, Mark, and John is the same. Luke's is different. So typical Gentile wanting to be on their own all the time, right? So th this is an interesting story. A year or so uh, ago, when we were sort of in the middle of the pandemic, um, Pastor George over at Grace Church held a leadership uh, event, and I drove over to the leadership event to be a part of that, but also to hear one of my favorite uh, communicators, and uh, actually her name is Danielle Strickland. I want to show you a picture of her. Uh, this is her newest book, The Other Side of Hope, which I recommend. I'm reading this story now. She's a fascinating leader, a captivating a preacher comes out of a, a story of addiction, and then she came to Christ through the Salvation Army, served in the Salvation Army for many years, and she has just got a fascinating way to communicate the gospel, and she shared a fascinating, a powerful illustration that I want to share with you, and she told this story about one of our most well-known anthropologists, and I want to show you her picture. Her name is Helen Fisher, and Helen Fisher did an amazing piece of research, and she took 37 people who were either madly in love 
or had just ended a relationship or had a relationship end in which they were madly in love and she put them through an, a functional MRI and she studied their brain activity. And, and Helen Fisher um, discovered that uh, as an anthropologist, she discovered that when we are in love with another human being, and that uh, can be you know, romantic love, it can also be the kind of love where we just have this deep sense of admiration for another person, which I think is what's going on in our text we're gonna look at today. She said, whenever that is going on, she said, there are three areas of the brain that light up when we are uh, in this kind of uh, relationship with another human being. And I wanna share that with you. It's super fascinating, this study. The first area in our brain that lights up when we uh, find ourselves in that sort of idea when she studied these people is the idea of pleasure. So when you're in love, the pleasure center of your brain lights up. And so, um, and the way that I would describe this, the way that Helen Fisher would describe this, is that when you are in that kind of relationship with another human being, there, it, it's the kind of relationship that makes every other single thing going on in your life feel just a little bit better. Does that make sense? You ever, uh, you think about being in love with somebody and it just sort of colors the world and, and everything just seems better? I can remember when uh, I went to seminary for the first time, I share all of my stories with you guys. And, you know, I had just sort of ended a relationship with a wonderful person, but I wanted to, you know, I was in love with God. I wanted to go and study. I felt like God was calling me uh, into full-time Christian service. So I ended that relationship, moved to Kentucky. And soon away, I, I met a friend of mine who uh, told me one afternoon, he was from Texas, and he said, I've got this girl that I think you should meet. And I remember saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really interested in her. And then I'll never forget this. It's going to make a little chuckle in the room. But he showed me a picture one day, and, he's, and I just said, she's awesome. I'm still not interested. And then this girl who was his friend from Texas Tech University showed up one day in class. And instantly, I was interested. <laughs> And that's when I met, met Beth. And I remember it was in Royal Auditorium. Do you remember? This is your moment to say yes, you remember. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I'll rem- I, I remember that like it was yesterday. And uh, this was the days, uh, days before 9-11. And I can remember when I went home, I told my dad about this girl that I met. And then I, you know, nothing else happened. And I, I came home for Christmas break. And I remember telling my dad on Christmas break, this before 911. And so when I flew back, I said, when I fly back to Kentucky, if when I get off the plane, she's there, I remember telling my dad, I've got a shot. And so, you know, I fly back to Kentucky, you get off the plane. Remember, people used to be able to come all the way down to the, to your gate and, and, and I walk around the corner and here's my really good friend Greg and next to Greg is Beth. And I went, home run. <laughs> and, and, and that was it. And, and, and we started a date and, and I have to tell you, when you start falling in love, it just makes everything better. I can remember that spring coming home, I got pulled over and got a ticket for driving fast and shocking, I know. 
And, and I'll never forget that the whole time the guy is talking to me and giving me a ticket, I have a picture of Beth on my dashboard and I'm just looking at the picture. I don't even, I wasn't even thinking about the guy giving me a $168 ticket, you know? It just makes everything better. And when you look at the life of Mary, this is what you see. There's something obviously going on in Mary's life in her interaction with Jesus that you can tell he's making things better. Now, we also know, right, this is the one chapter after Jesus raises Mary's brother, Lazarus, to life. So there's this incredible sense of admiration. There's this incredible sense of love. There's this incredible sense of devotion that is going on, and we can almost see it. Right there in the story. Interesting, right? Now, uh, Helen Fisher, when she studied the, 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 these 37 people who were madly in love, and she put them through this MRI, she noticed these three things, uh, these three areas light up. The first one, pleasure. The second one, interestingly, is this. The risk center. The idea, the, th- the, the part of your brain that calculates risk fires up when you're in love. And uh, you ever think about that? Like when you're in love with somebody, right? You, you just, you're willing to risk everything. You're willing to do the craziest things, right? Because why? Because you love this person. I remember uh, when, when I heard this, uh, this story uh, on a TED Talk, and you can watch this. I remember coming to Beth, and I asked her, I said, so I said, what did, what, what, what risky thing have you done because you fell in love with me? <laughs> That's a vulnerable thing to ask, right? And there was, a, there was a moment of silence. It was a little longer than I wanted it to, to be, you know, in that moment. And she said, finally, she looked at me and she said, well, she said, um, I left the motherland to follow a, you know, a skinny beach boy preacher to Florida because I was in love. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And she said, what did you do? (laughs) And I had to respond. And I told her, I thought for a moment, I thought, well, because she said that, I said, I drove our family 858 miles every year to the motherland (laughs) because I was in love. We'll just kind of move on. But when, when you have this sense of admiration for someone, the idea of risk uh, is, is very present. Uh, remember the song? I, in fact, named the message after the song, The Things We Do for Love, like walking in the rain and the snow, and there's to go, and you're feeling like... Nine of us got it. Okay. Yeah. Do you see that in Mary's life? Do you see it? Um, scholars tell us that Mary uh, was willing to bring the only thing she had that was of any monetary value. And she breaks it and pours it out over Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. It's a measure of risk. Uh, Everybody in the room is probably looking at her, right? You know, wondering what she's doing. She's the only woman 
as best we can tell, in the room, not there with a purpose. Mary's serving, or Martha's serving, which she always did, right? Here's Mary, doesn't have a purpose, that's her purpose. And it's risky. Scholars tell us that was probably her dowry. And we think about women, that women back then and that day were property of a man, and a man could just on a whim divorce a woman. This was her only thing that she had that she was able to use in the future should she not ever find herself married. It was a tremendous risk to her. And she poured it out on Jesus' feet. Helen Fisher says that there's one other area of the brain that fires up when you have this deep sense of admiration or this deep sense of love for another person. It's not only pleasure, it's not only risk, it's um, what we would call attachment. When you really love someone, you want to be attached to them. You want to be with them all the time. And this is kind of the quality that I think makes love such a powerful thing. I shared this story when I was in seminary uh, about my own relationship that formed with Beth. I had another friend who was there studying to be a pastor, and he was kind of a crazy guy. Came out, came, came out of a lot of background of addiction, and God had just radically changed this guy's life, and he always had fascinating stories to tell. And I can remember sitting in the dorm one evening talking to this guy and he starts telling me the story about when he was in love with this person and he was going to drive across the country to be with them. And he said, I'm going to drive across the country. I had to get there in this short amount of time. I just needed to be with her. I just needed to, to be in her presence. You could see the attachment going on. And he said, this is the story he told. He said, I need to drive across the country. And he said, I was just going to drive all night. How many of you ever driven all night to be with somebody that you love, right? And uh, he said, I was a little nervous about getting there. And he said, I had another friend who told me that he said, if you smoke, it keeps you awake. And he said, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. And he said, but I set out to go see this girl that I was going to be with. He said, I, I smoked four packs of cigarettes nonstop to be with her. And I drank coffee nonstop. He said, in fact, I didn't fall asleep. I didn't even get there on time. I got there early. But I smelled so bad she broke up with me. And again, you can see this kind of thing in Mary's life. She just wants to be where Jesus is. Now, I got to just tell you, there's a lot of meaning around this idea, right? Pleasure, risk, and attachment. The other fascinating thing that happens in this story is we see in John's version, remember it, my, my scholar friend says, Matthew, Mark, and John are the same story. Luke's a separate encounter. But in this story, John's the only one that lifts up another character in the, in the story, and, and we know him. His name is Judas. And scholars tell us a very um, somber thing in this story. This is what they suggest to us. This is the moment, y'all, this is the moment where we lose 
Judas. Scholars think that this, this is the moment where it becomes clear that Judas is not with Jesus. And he's backing away. And it's kind of fascinating to look because you got Mary's life, Mary's leaning in. I mean, she's willing to do whatever. She's gonna, you know, risk it all. She's gonna be attached to him. The pleasure center of her brain's firing off. She's doing everything she can to be seen and to be in his presence. And what's Judas doing? He's backing up. He's stepping back. John's version is the only version of the story that actually tells us Judas was there. If you read Matthew, if you read Mark, they suggest to us when all this weird encounter goes on, they suggest to us that the disciples were upset at the person, at the, at the female who did this. John's story is the only one who tells us it really wasn't the, just the disciples. It was Judas. And if you study this, it's sort of fascinating encounter. You look at pleasure, risk, and attachment in the life of Mary, what you discover in Judas is actually almost, follow me now, the opposite of these three. Look at it this way. If you, what's the opposite of attachment? Detachment. Scholars think this is the moment that Judas detaches from Jesus. In fact, if you take your gospel, your Bible, and your John 12, and you just flip the page to John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and he calls out that someone's going to betray him, the very person who dips his hand into the Passover meal with Jesus. Who's he referencing? Judas. I was reading recently about something that's called um, detachment management. Sometimes we do this in our human relationships. We try to control our human relationships to keep the other person attached to us in some way. And whenever you control another human being, you don't ever get what you want, which is attachment. You actually get separation. Because isn't it a weird thing that with the same measure that love provides all this incredible emotion, incredible blessing, when we up all of the blessing, we are simultaneously upping all of the risk. We're giving that person actually more power to harm us because we're so in love with them. And if we try to control the attachment and minimize the risk, it never produces what we think it's going to produce. And you see it in Judas's life. Now, think with me about this to go on with the illustration. What's the opposite of risk? Safety. Play it safe. Hold a little back. Just kind of minimize the risk in some way. You ever been in a relationship that has no passion, but has all this safety involved? It's not actually a great relationship to be a part of. Judas, you see it. 
Why are you doing such a risky thing? I mean, you could have saved the money and given it to the poor. And John's story is the only one that actually has a response that says, you know, he didn't really mean that because he was stealing the money anyway. Um, one more. What's the opposite of pleasure? What, what is it? No, it's not. I anticipated you are going to say that. You know what the opposite of pleasure is? It's duty. You ever, um, you ever been in a relationship that was really built on obligation? Some of us have been trapped in relationships like that. When Beth and I were young in ministry, I tell people all the time, our, our marriage, um, our first year marriage was phenomenal. Everybody says your first year marriage is rough. Our first year of marriage was phenomenal. Our fifth year of marriage, uh, we had moved to a new town. We had just had a baby. And I would leave the house every day. And, and sometimes when I would return, my precious bride would be in the same chair I left her in with a grumpy baby. And we were learning friends and getting to know people. And it was the hardest year of our lives, really, in our marriage. And I remember a fight we got into. I don't even remember what the fight was about. And the church was planning to throw me a, a, a party for turning 30. And it was a surprise party. And Beth got so mad at me one afternoon, she told me the surprise early. <laughs> she said, and I'm going to watch you go and act like it's a surprise. There are people streaming this service right now who are learning this right in this moment right now. And um, we knew enough in our young marriage while we're learning to go out on dates. And we went out on a date on Friday night because it was in the calendar to go out on a date on Friday night when we were barely speaking to one another. You ever go on a date night when it's just on the calendar and it feels like an obligation? And uh, we went to a Mexican restaurant, I'll never forget it, and, and we were still trying to get over whatever, argu- whatever I had done wrong to create this thing. I'm sure it was me. And, um, and it was interesting, at this one point at, at the moment, they knew it was my birthday party, and they came out in this Mexican restaurant and put this huge sombrero on me and started singing. And I looked so absolutely ridiculous. She started to laugh, and I started to laugh, and we lived to be married another day. <laughs> my point is, Duty and obligation kills a relationship. Now, I want to share something with you as we come to the close of this series. Pastor Dale, what are you driving at? I'll put it right on the bottom shelf. Would you be able to measure your love for Jesus around pleasure? That you love him so much 
that he just has this place in your life that he makes everything better. Would you be able to measure your love for Jesus around risk? I mean, what would you say right now about your love for God and the person of Jesus that could be measured by the way you're risking certain aspects of your life to love him? Because I would tell you, if you're not risking anything, your love's probably not that deep. And uh, what about this? Uh, Would you measure your love for Christ around attachment? That you just want to be with him? You know, it's super fascinating. We're thinking about the story of this story, and we're thinking about Judas. Bible says that after he betrayed Jesus um, and, and all of that moment settled in on him, we know, we know how the story ended for Judas. It's horrific. He took his own life. One of the things I'm fascinated with is that we always refer to Judas as the betrayer. Can I just remind everybody in the room, every single follower of Christ when Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinful men, every one of them betrayed Jesus. Do you know the only one who didn't? Mary. And, and, and I find it interesting, when we, we talk about Peter, we don't call him the betrayer. When we talk about Matthew, why don't we say, Matthew, you know, the one who betrayed Jesus? I mean, they all betrayed Jesus, except Mary. And we have this fascinating story in John chapter 21 after the resurrection where Jesus comes to reinstate Peter. Do you remember? Hey, Peter. What does he ask him? Hey, Peter, do you love me? You know what I find super fascinating? He asked Peter the question three times. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Pleasure. Hey, Peter, do do you love me? Risk. Peter, do you love me? Attachment. Now, I don't know that's what's going on there. Makes me wonder. Sometimes I wonder, too, the only difference between, say, Peter's story and Judas' story is time. If Judas would have waited maybe just a little longer, just a little longer, maybe Jesus would have got to him too. If you're going to have a resilient faith, I, I can't think of any other way to say it than this. You have to figure out what you got to do to move Jesus into the number one spot that he deserves to be in. And when you get that order right, 
I'm telling you, he'll make everything else come into alignment. Lord Jesus Christ, might we all aspire to be the kinds of people who love you with our whole selves. Might we be the kind of people, Lord, of whom it is said, you know, you you said it in your language, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Maybe in this moment, in this message, we want to say we want to love you in pleasure. We, We want to love you with risk. We want to love you in attachment. And then we trust you in your spirit to fill in all the other blanks. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I really think the call of our day really is to figure out a way that's fully revealed in the scriptures, by the way, on how it is that you and I as followers of Jesus attach our very lives to him. Dallas Willard, who is such an inspiration in my own life, said near his death, a strong follower of Jesus, that he said, I think that's the key to building a life of faith across your whole life, is to find a way to become attached to Jesus. I want to send you out with that prayer. Could we just maybe assume this sort of posture? And Lord, uh, we're here before you as your people. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we are learning this morning that our love to you must involve pleasure, must involve risk, must involve attachment, that Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to every heart leaning in your direction, would you help us become attached to you? Those of us that have been hurt in that area, Lord, would you heal us and free us so that we can, with our spirit, be attached to you. This is what it is to have resilience of faith over a long haul. We pray this together in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen. Would you go in his mercy and his grace? We'll see you next weekend. Praise God.